Welcome to this podcast from Wilkesboro Baptist Church, where we are on a mission to lead our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. I heard an amen. You can say it in louder, a little bit louder. That's good, isn't it? Jesus is our living hope. Me and Jeremiah chapter 29, Jeremiah 29, our memory verse for this month is Jeremiah 29, 11, which is a very familiar verse, maybe one of the most familiar in the entire Old Testament in terms of a verse to remember. Many people have it as a theme verse in their life. Uh, it's on, you know, uh, things that you put in your house. It's one of those verses that's highlighted, that's adopted, that's owned, that's memorized, that's claimed. It reads like this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. It's a beautiful verse. But I want us to know something about this verse of Scripture in this passage. I think sometimes the way we take it, memorize it, and own it, we actually short it from what it is intended to mean, what it meant when the first readers read it, and what it means for us today. I'd like us to look at this verse in the context in which it's found in Jeremiah chapter 29, uh, the, the passage of Scripture there where Jeremiah is writing a letter to the exiles. Now, wh- why do I say this? Because I want us to unpack this verse in its context. See, context is key to understanding and interpreting a passage of Scripture. Let me illustrate it this way. If I looked out at you as an audience and I said, run, some of you would wonder what in the world I was talking about, right? Now, if there was a fire in the room and I yelled, run, well, then that would make sense. You would run, and some of you would run faster than others, and some of you might just walk fast. You might not run at all right? Context is key. But nobody in this moment got up and followed my instruction. You do get that, right? I gave you an instruction. You didn't listen. You didn't get up and run. Nobody abided by that. Now, take that same command and move it to the baseball field. Your son or your grandson or your daughter or your granddaughter is on a baseball or a softball field, and they take a swing with their bat, and they hit it. And you as a parent are yelling, run, and praying they don't run to third base, praying they run to first base. The context matters. Run carries a different, and it's absolutely normal to yell run in that context. It shifts the context again. You're sitting on your porch swing, and somebody walks out and yells, run, there's a snake underneath your porch swing right? And the context changes, and that might actually get some of you to run, if that were the case. My point is this, the context helps us grasp how we're to, how we're to interpret a passage of Scripture, a verse of Scripture. If we just take a verse and pull it out of its context and interpret it from that angle, then we might actually interpret it incorrectly, certainly might short it or distort it. And in some cases, we might actually do damage to the text if we're not interpreting it within its context. Uh, What we're talking about, the fancy word for this, or the scientific word, is hermeneutics. 
It's the study and art of biblical interpretation. And it's what we do every time we open up a passage of Scripture. So what I, I have an opportunity and an obligation to do as a preacher and teacher is to interpret Scripture correctly. And there are all kind of questions that we might ask to discover the context. Is the verse that we're looking at or the passage, is it poetry? Or is it a didactic passage because we interpret it differently? Is it a narrative section? In other words, is it a story or is it prophetic? Because that shapes how we would interpret the particular passage of Scripture. In which book is it found? That shapes how we would interpret a passage of Scripture. Is it intended to be an application or is it intended to be a piece of advice? The book of Proverbs is a book of Proverbs. It's advice. It's not a book of promises. So there's a little different way to take the Proverbs than there is a promise that Jesus makes when he's talking to his, uh, his, his disciples or when he's talking to us. So context is key. So what I'd like us to do is unpack the context of Jeremiah 29 11, and I think we'll actually leave this worship service a little richer and understanding this verse a little better than maybe when we walked in. So in our text, we're going to look at three interpretive clues that help us grasp what he's talking about in this passage of Scripture. And then that will lead to three specific applications for us as we work through Jeremiah 29. We won't read the whole letter to the exiles. We'll stop at verse 14, but pick up with me at Jeremiah 29 verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken in exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, to king, the king of Babylon. It said, well, Paul's right there. Let me set the context just a moment, okay? We know that Jeremiah's ministry was primarily to the people there in Jerusalem. God sent him to preach doom and gloom, judgment, to tear down, and also to give an opportunity for repentance. Well, what took place is God sent Babylon to be the instrument of judgment to the people of Jerusalem. And under Jehoiakim's reign, that's when uh, Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar came for the very first time. They came into Jerusalem and they took away thousands of the best and brightest from Jerusalem to the, to the exile. They took away the gold and silver from the temple and they made Jerusalem what would become a vassal kingdom. They were underneath Babylon's power. Now they would come back and they would completely destroy Jerusalem later under Zedekiah's reign. That happened in 586 BC. So the, the exile that we're talking about here took place around 598 BC. And if you want it, uh, some biblical context, this is probably the same group of exiles that Daniel was taken to Babylon with. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel were taken during this time. So Jeremiah is still preaching, he's still teaching, he's still communicating with the people there in Jerusalem, and he's writing them a letter. And the reason he's writing them a letter is because the false prophets that were in Judah and Jerusalem telling the people not to follow God and not to repent, telling people that God's judgment wasn't permanent, were 
ta- were also in Babylon telling the people of uh, the exiles there, the people from Jerusalem, uh, some false things as well. And so Jer- the context, the audience, is the exiles in Babylon. They're reading this letter that Jeremiah sent. So let's unpack what Jeremiah says in verse 4, or what the Lord says through Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Here's a very powerful verse, verse 7. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf, for it's in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. We'll pick up verse 10 in just a second. Let me explain that, that, uh, those two verses about the false prophets. What they were saying in Babylon is that the exile was going to be only a couple years long. They were telling that the exiled believers, the exiled uh, folks from Jerusalem, hey, Babylon's not going to last very long, and you're going to be able to go back in just a few short years. And what God is saying through Jeremiah is that that's not the case. You don't need to listen to those false prophets who are saying things that aren't coming from me, and so that's the occasion of the letter. Pick up in verse 10. For thus says the Lord... And God gets very specific here. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. And here's the famous verse that we all love and like to memorize. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wholeness. And you could translate that welfare in your copy of Scripture. It may be the exact same word that's used in verse 7 for the welfare of the city. That's important because it's the same word in Hebrew. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your wholeness or for your welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future to hope. Then you will call upon me and come to me, come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you, into exile. Uh, Let's look at three context clues and then three applications. Here's clue number one. The original readers were exiles in a foreign land. You really need to grasp this. This is not a message preached to those in Jerusalem in Jerusalem. This is not a message that Jeremiah preached uh, in terms of repentance and bringing the people of Israel back to God. This is not a message preached to those who were experiencing good things. This is a message preached to exiles. This is a message preached to people, a letter sent to people who had lost everything that they had ever worked for. This is a message preached to people who were not living in their homeland. This is a message preached to people who would qualify more as refugees and as captives than they would qualify as people with a home people with a job, people with a land, and people with an identity. We need to grasp this. The original readers were exiles in a foreign land. That's who the audience was. The application is this. We must read and apply this passage as 
pilgrims. What's a pilgrim? A pilgrim is someone who realizes that this is not their home. I want you to really grasp this. What Jeremiah is telling the exiles is that, listen, you're going to be there for a while. So act like you're going to be there for a while. He gives them some very specific instructions. He says, get married. Build houses. Find a job. Have kids. Give those kids away in marriage. Have grandbabies. How many of you in here like your grandbabies? Love your grandbabies? The only thing better than being a parent I've heard is being a grandparent. I think I've watched that take place. My dad and my mother-in-law, based on my experience, are much nicer to my children than, than they were to me. I mean, they were wonderful parents. I love them, and I thank God for my parents. But man, they, they spoil. But here's what God's saying through Jeremiah. Have children. Have grandchildren. Build houses. Take care of those that are in your home. Why? Because there is a future plan for them and for you. The implication is that the, those that were exiles, there was an important plan for them and for their progeny, their future, and if they lived in the way that they were told, there would be something left for them down the road. Now, the implication for us is great. It's an acknowledgement that what God is asking of us is to remember that God's put us here, but this isn't really our home. You realize that, right? I mean, this was not the place where they were to live forever. This wasn't their hope. Their hope wasn't in Babylon. Their hope was in Jerusalem. But while they were in Babylon, they needed to live like their lives mattered there. So he told them to have children, to have wives, to have grandchildren, to be fruitful and multiply. It actually goes back to Genesis chapter 128, the cultural mandate, where God says to be fruitful and multiply to Adam and Eve. There's this implication that we're to spread out and we're to make good of the world in which we live. Now, this also has other implications for the people of Israel, the exiles that were there. He didn't just say, have kids, get married, have grandkids, have a job. Notice what he said in verse 7. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you in exile. Catch this, pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will have welfare. That word welfare is the Hebrew word shalom. It's a word for peace. It's usually translated peace in the English Bible. According to Tim Keller, it means far more than what our English word conveys. It means complete reconciliation, a state of the fullest flourishing in every dimension. Physical, emotional, social, and spiritual. Because all relationships are right, perfect, and filled with joy. When your body is healthy, especially when you're young, you have energy, strength, beauty, and because all the parts of your body are working in unity. But when you're injured, parts of your body may be out of alignment with others. Cancer cells, for example, work against um, other systems of the body. When the parts of your body fail to work interdependently, you experience the loss of physical shalom or well-being. When you die, you literally unravel. When you experience a season of mental well-being, it's because the things of your emotions, uh, the things your emotions want, are those of which your conscience and reason approve. Here's, here's, he's applying this in its, all its dimensions. 
It, the idea of shalom, when a Jewish person would say peace be to you or shalom to you, it's not just a welcome or a greeting or it's not just a closing. It's an implication that God wants the, what is best for you completely. He doesn't just want you to feel good. He wants you to be good mentally, emotionally, physically, socially. And what God is saying so strikingly to the exiles is that they were to pursue not their own shalom in Babylon, but the shalom of Babylon. They were living as exiles in a pagan, wicked place, and they were told, pray for the peace of the place in which you live. Because if you have peace in the land in which you live, then you're going to experience the blessings of the land in which you live because I have a plan for you that's long-term. That's striking. Because this wasn't what they wanted. They wanted to go back to Jerusalem. They wanted to go back to the temple. You recognize that their worship was interrupted. They couldn't go back to the temple and worship every Saturday. They couldn't bring sacrifices to God. And yet God said, I have some instructions for you, for your spiritual life, your physical life, your social life, your political life. You're to seek and pursue the welfare of the place in which you are, which is amazing because the place in which they were was not godly, was not led by godly kings, was led by wicked people. Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar was a terrible king. Occasionally he bowed before God and acknowledged God, but then he was so prideful and wicked that God turned him into an animal for seasons of his life. And his sons didn't get the message, and they acted even more wickedly than Nebuchadnezzar did. And yet God said through Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the place in which you live. How do we apply this in our own lives? Well, we need to recognize that we are pilgrims. The place in which we live is not the goal, right? I mean, I, I, I like where I live, and I like the home I live in, and I like the place in which I live, but this is not the goal. This is not where I'm going to end up one day. Thank heavens, heaven is better than Wilkes County. Amen? Heaven is better than America. Heaven is better than any other place on planet earth. There is something longer, there's a long game that God is playing in our lives. But we need to realize that while we're here, while we're living in this world, we need to work for the spiritual, social, emotional, physical welfare and well-being of the world in which we live. There's some two specific applications that I want to draw our attention to. As pilgrims in the land, we should pray for the leaders that we have. Can I get an amen? We need to pray for our mayors in Wilkesboro and North Wilkesboro. We need to pray for those that are responsible for making decisions. Evidently, we need to pray for healthcare officials now because they've been given, you know, much greater decision-making power in our communities than they've ever had. We need to pray for governors and we need to pray for senators and certainly we need to pray for our president. I will tell you this, just speaking, speaking from my heart for a moment... If, if you only pray for the president of the party you like, then you're not obeying Scripture. Okay? In the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2, God told through Paul to the church, he said, pray for kings and pray for leaders, echoing this very passage. Pray for the peace, pray for peace and well-being. And he didn't qualify that by saying, pray for those you like and pray against those you don't like. 
No, he said pray for those who are in office. And, and let me say what this means. This means that you and I as followers of Jesus, if we pursue prayer for those that are in leadership, the, the, the idea of that is that you and I are to be a part of making peace happen. I mean, you look around, it's the, our land is divided and we're in discord and we're angry. And, and you know this as well as I do. I, whoever you vote for and whoever becomes president, or, or whenever we find out whoever becomes president, because there's concerns about that as well, our land is divided. You know what we're to do? We're to pray for and against the division in our land and pray for peace. And that leads to the second specific application, not just pray for that. And Jeremiah said that, pray for the land in which you live, were to work toward the shalom and the welfare of those around us. Let me tell you who should not be up in arms and worried about November 3rd. Us, followers of Jesus. You realize we shouldn't be up in arms and worried about it? Do you know why we shouldn't be worried about it? Because our hope, as we've talked about in the book of Jeremiah, does not rest in party or president. Our hope rests in a Savior who's in control. And no matter who becomes president of the United States... On November 3rd, God is still in charge. No matter what chaos ensues, God is still in charge. You know who should take comfort in that? And you know who should lead in modeling that? We should. We should work toward the welfare of our communities and our nation. We shouldn't fight about it, argue about it, get mad about it. I mean, I'm, I'm saying, not saying don't be passionate, but we ought to have a peace. And we ought to lead others in having a peace. If Jeremiah can preach that to exiles in Babylon then goodness knows we who are living in a lot of peace and security that is unlike what the people of Israel heard in Jeremiah 29, 11, we ought to be able to apply that in our own lives. Can I get an amen? That ought to be who we are. We ought to work toward the welfare of the land in which we live. Let me give you a second context clue. It's this. Jeremiah's letter was to the community. To the community. Every you in the verse... 14 verses of Jeremiah 29 is plural. We take Jeremiah 29, 11, and we apply it individualistically. We live in an individualistic, highly individualistic culture. In part, that is right, because as a follower of Jesus, you have to make an individual decision to follow Jesus. I can't make that decision for my child. I can't make that decision for someone else. I can't make someone put their faith in Jesus. That has to be between you and God. But too often, we over-individualize our faith. We make it all about us, all about me, all about what I feel, what I think, what I dream, what I want. And all too often we read Jeremiah 29, 11 from the context of an individualistic expression. We think God knows the plans he has for me. There are plans for my welfare and there are plans for my future. And there's a truth to that. That's not false. It's just not complete. What I mean by not complete is it's not just about you individually, and it's not just about me individually, it's about us as the community of believers. And it makes this passage of Scripture much more full in the way that we unpack it. So here's what we must do in applying it. We must read and apply the passage as a community of believers, not just individually, not just how it affects me. And I think God does care about you and God does care about me. 
The other Sunday morning, I was driving, getting ready to drive to church. It was kind of foggy. It was a little chilly in the morning. And I left something inside, and I walked back inside to get it. And my wife looked at me, and she said, be careful for deer. And I walked back in. I gave her a kiss on the cheek, got back in my car, took my time, got down the road, and three deer walked out in front. One was in the road, one was beside the road, and another was about to cross the road. I had slowed way down. Listening to my wife's advice, be careful for deer. Didn't get in an accident that morning, thank goodness. Didn't run it over, run a deer over, wasn't driving too fast. Do I think God ordained and orchestrated that? Probably. There's probably plenty of times in your life he's protected you from doing something foolish or stupid or protected me from doing something foolish or stupid or protected us from an accident that was about to happen. Absolutely, God cares about you individually and God cares about me individually. But God cares about us collectively as the body of Christ, in some ways even more so than he cares about you and me individually. That shows the glory and the grandeur of God. He wants what's best, not just for you and me, but for us. It's a community for us to apply that. And what does that mean? Well, it means it's not about you. Life's not about you. I was having a little bit of a pity party this week, a little frustrated about some things, and I was trying to follow Jeremiah's advice. You know, Jeremiah gives us a good example, a good model. He didn't complain out. He complained up, and he talked to God about it. And I, so I was taking my little pity party to God. And as clear as the Holy Spirit's ever spoken in my heart, he said to me, Chris, it's not about you. It's just not about you. What you're frustrated about is not about you. Get over it. Love people. Love me. It's not about you. You know, that's good advice for all of us. Because when God says to us, I know the plans I have for you, he's not just talking about you individually. He's talking about us as the body of believers. I know the plans I have for you. And they are plans for your welfare. That's shalom, by the way. The exact same word in verse 7. I have plans for your peace and for your future and for your hope. And you know what that means for us? It means that some things are not going to be exactly like we want them to go. Church is not like... It used to be. It's not going to be like it used to be for a long, long time. It may never get to be like it used to be. And, and it may not be reopening fast enough for some of you. And it may be reopening too fast for others. It may not be your cup of tea. It may not be my cup of tea. But it's not about me. And it's not about you. We know that God knows the plans that he has for us. He's in charge. It's about us as a community. You know what that means? It means that if we begin to think like a community, and by the way, this is my greatest burden uh, for, for all of this. It's not the, the familiarity of church or the lack of that that bothers me. Here's, here's what, what breaks my heart and what I'm concerned about. It's how we will react as a community of believers. Because there, there's a, there is a gap. It's one of the reasons we did reopen, because we need each other. It's, it's important biblically. And our Sunday school has been a little odd. Some have continued meeting through Zoom and some are meeting during the week. That's odd. That's part of our fellowship. That's part of our community. Discipleship groups are continuing to meet. At least some of them are. That's fantastic. But there has been a gap in the community of believers working together, serving together, and meeting together. And I'll be honest with you, when I look at what's going to happen in the life of the church two years from now or five years from now as a response to this or as a result from this, that's, that's what I'm concerned about. What will our community look like? 
Because we need that. And God speaks to that directly. We need to understand this in light of community. So what does that mean? Listen, God may use your smile. God may use a note you send to somebody else. God may use your patience in dealing with something that's not exactly like you'd like it to be to help someone else who's doing their best in what they're doing, but it may not be what you... God may use your patience. God may use your compassion. God may use your encouragement to make a tremendous difference in somebody else's life. We need to apply this passage of Scripture as a community. Let me give you a third context clue. This is great. Jeremiah's message promised future redemption to the exiled people. Listen, I want you to grasp this. The promise of Jeremiah 29, 11 was not going to be experienced by most of those who first read it. Catch this. Verse 11, God says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. He's talking about, verse 10, 70 years from now, the exiles are going to come back to Jerusalem. The context is God's saying to the people, in 70 years you're going to return. For most of those reading, they didn't get to experience the return. Some did, not all. In other words, the promise was about a future redemption that they would experience, a future restoration a future return. It it wasn't necessarily something that they saw the fulfillment of that in their lifetime. So here's what this means. We must read and apply this passage through a redemptive lens. You need to understand that the primary emphasis here is not on some kind of internal or personal peace or prosperity. It's not that that's not there. It's just that's not the primary focus of it. The primary focus is on a redemptive and a restorative nature that was going to take place 70 years in the future or nearly 70 years in the future from the time Jeremiah wrote the letter. In other words, there's a long game being played when too many of us are living the short game. We're living for today and tomorrow and God is saying to the people of The exiles, hey, you need to think about something that's going to happen way off in the future. And he makes it very clear. Look at verse 12. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I'll hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from the nations and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you in exile. This is a specific evangelistic passage. If there's an evangelistic passage in the Old Testament, this is it. God's inviting us to call upon him and he'll answer us and he'll receive us. Uh, By the way, it's still plural you. He's not just talking to you individually. He's talking to you collectively, you in a plural sense, but he's inviting us to call upon Jesus. And you know what you can do in this moment? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he's inviting you. If you'll seek him, He'll let you find him. If you seek him, he'll answer you. If you call upon Jesus, he will hear you. And as simple as that sounds, if you're in a place of brokenness and despair, if you're in a place of exile, separation from God, all you have to do is call upon Jesus. Say, God, I know I'm broken and I'm a sinner and I can't fix it. I call upon you. You know what God will do? God will reach out to you. God will find you. God will restore you. God will save you. God will redeem you. It's a beautiful picture of salvation. We need to see this through a redemptive lens. Now, here's what that means for us. God does have a plan for you. God does have a plan for your shalom, for your peace, 
for your future and for your hope, but you may not experience it until you get to heaven. Now, you may experience some of it now. And to be quite honest, most of us have experienced God's blessings and protection and provision and His peace. And and He's done that for many of us. And He's done that probably for most of us. But the ultimate experience of that promise is not for this life. Because remember, we're pilgrims. Remember, our home is not here. Folks, our home is in a place where we don't have to wear a mask It's in a place where there is no more pandemic. It's in a place where your body is not going to get old. It's in a place where you're not going to have trouble taking a walk. It's in a place where you're not going to suffer anymore. It is in a place where God does have a specific plan for your future. And it is a plan for your peace. It's a plan for your emotional, spiritual, physical well-being that is beyond anything we can imagine. We need to see this passage through a redemptive lens. Let me close it this way with an application that I think will help us all. So how in the world do we put this into practice? How do we own it? How do we apply it in our own lives? Well, I don't know if you travel now, but I'm sure most of you have traveled on an airplane before. I've been on an airplane a number of times. Many of you have been on more airplanes than you'd like to count. And you care to think, you know what they do every time you get on an airplane, you sit down on that airplane, they're going to put on a video screen or there's going to be a steward or stewardess stand up and they're going to give you instructions about what's going to happen if something bad happens. They're going to tell you that that seat cushion serves as a flotation device. That is really disconcerting when you know you're flying over land. And you're not going over the ocean like, well, that's not going to help out. I mean, you know, you crash land in Kansas, that flotation device is not going to help you much at all. They, they tell you that, that these are the things you need to know. The exits are here. And if you're sitting in this particular seat, are you okay sitting in this seat because this is an exit seat? All that kind of stuff. But here's something else they tell you. They tell you that if there is an oxygen deficiency in the plane, a mask is going to drop down. And they tell you this, they say, make sure you put on your mask first before you help the person next to you put on their mask if they need help. Why are they telling you that? Because, folks, we're not much good to anybody if we're dead. You're passed out and dead, and you don't have your mask on, your oxygen mask, you're not going to help somebody else. I'll tell you what this means for us. It means this. You and I need to live like... We own this promise and we have this peace from God because if we have this promise applied in our lives, knowing that God's with us, knowing that he's going to be our peace, knowing that he's going to be our shalom, knowing that we have an eternal life in the future, guess what can happen? God can use us to be the instrument to bring his peace to those around us. If this passage is applied in a community sense, let me tell you a few things that this can mean. It could mean this. Some of you as parents are begging God for your children to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Some of you as grandparents are begging God for for your grandchildren to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. What if? What if God wants you to apply? Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek with me, seek me with all your heart. What if you're to be the model for that for your grandchildren, for your children? What if your drive to pray and seek God with all your heart is the means by which God will bring your child or grandchild to faith in him? What if, as a community group leader, discipleship group leader, Sunday school teacher, deacon, 
at our church. What if God wants you to have this peace that he talks about? What if God wants you to seek him with your whole heart so that your discipleship group or your Sunday school class or those that you're ministering to will see the trust that you have in a God and the peace that God's given you and will experience it by extension or by what you're sharing in their lives? What if God wants to bring peace And God wants to bring uh, revival to our land through his people acting like Christians and having peace and not being divisive and not being argumentative and not being mean, but being peace givers in the community in which we live. What if? Folks, I, I think we need to live like this promise is for us as a community of believers. Maybe you're here and you want to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I'd be happy to tell you how you can do that. For most of us, I think the application is to own this promise, but own it in the sense in which it is intended, as a community, as pilgrims, and with a redemptive lens. Maybe you want to pray for somebody at this invitation. Maybe you want to take this out and live it in a specific applicational way. Amen. Let's be Christians that live for the welfare, not just of those in our immediate context, but live for the shalom of those around us in our community and across our nation. Stand with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we come to you, and we are immensely grateful for your promises. Lord, I pray that you would help us to grasp the depth of this promise to your people so many years ago and how that affects us and does apply to our lives today. Lord, may we have your peace. May we experience your peace. Lord, may we share it with others. Lord God, I pray that I would seek you with my whole heart for my son who needs Jesus. I pray that I would seek you with my whole heart for the children and the teenagers and the adults in our church and community that need a relationship with the living God. I pray, Lord, that we as parents and as grandparents, that we as deacons and Sunday school teachers and discipleship group leaders and staff members would realize it's not about us, but would seek you with our whole heart, would beg you, would bow on our knees before you, and you would use us to be instruments of sharing your peace and your grace and your mercy in the lives of those around us. And Lord God, I pray that we as Christians would embrace this promise and embrace this application to live as people of peace. And Father, you'd use us to bring peace where there's division, to bring calmness where there's chaos, to bring grace where there is anger and hate. Father, may we be followers of you and live this out in a way that glorifies you in our world. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Remember to like and subscribe wherever podcasts are found.